Hello and welcome to the second episode of After Office Hours, a sociology podcast hosted by two undergrads at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. This interview was recorded on September 24th, 2020. So today, Sienna and I are talking with Professor Jonathan Wynn. He is a professor in the sociology department at UMass Amherst, and he currently serves as the chair of the department. He studies urban sociology and culture through qualitative methodology. Thank you so much for chatting with us. Pleasure to be here. So I think Sienna and I would just like to start the conversation just hearing a bit about your background generally, how you came to academia, sociology in particular, and maybe if you want to talk a bit about what you research and why, how you came to that, we'd be super interested. Um, well, I, uh, for a long time, since I was a little kid, I wanted to be an architect. And so I, all through high school, took architecture classes, and then I went into an architectural program and for two years uh, of college. And then um, I realized that being an architecture student was super fun. You were staying up all night listening to the violent femmes and singing along and smoking and drinking and building like great models and drawings. Um, but then I worked uh, for a summer in an, in an architecture firm and I realized that I was, you know, I was wearing a tie and um, listening to Oldies 105.5 in, in, in over the, the, the speakers and um, I realized it was very boring. And so, and that, that being an architect was really fun, like if you were at the top level, but that like doing the day to day of like, you know, designing railings and, you know, parking spaces and things like that was not very exciting. And I was much more interested in the people. Um, so I kind of like overcorrected and I, I was interested in, in psychology. And so I ended up uh, transferring. I realized late in life that I'm a transfer student. I kind of didn't know that that was a thing. Um, I just transferred, but I didn't realize that that was a thing, you know, that you kind of, that, that I moved from a very, um, a program that was tightly knit. And then I was kind of sent to a, a UMass like university, um, University of Buffalo and just kind of like thrown into a mix of a lot of different people. And I was really, really lost. Um, I took psychology classes, big, big psychology classes. I didn't connect with any professors um, until my last class to fill out my minor in sociology. And um, I, I took a class with a grad student and that grad student just kind of reached into, it was, uh, it was sociology of gender, I don't know if it's that. And um, I started reading readings that I just had never seen before and you know, didn't know that you could think those ways. And it, it just, it was my last, it was the last moment of my undergraduate career. And um, this, this grad student kind of reached into my brain and, and flipped a switch that has, I've never been able to find the off switch since. Um, I, I was absolutely, I, I just could not get enough of it. I realized that this is how I wanted to kind of see the world and that I had been seeing the world in this way and it just kind of matched, meshed up with, with how I'd been thinking. Um, and so I was just, you know, kind of ravenously reading as much sociology as I possibly could. That grad student ended up getting a job at UNLV, which is um, Nevada, Las Vegas. And she said, hey, you should come and get your master's at UNLV. And I, I was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm a 22-year-old I'm, I'm kid in Buffalo. Like, Vegas sounds like the craziest idea, I've, a place I've ever heard in my life. I'll go. And I ended up going um, to Las Vegas and, and getting a degree in sociology. And then I went to New York. Um, but the thread of, of architecture and really of people in spaces is the thing that never left me. Um, I always am interested in how organization, kind of buildings and organizations work in places and in cities. And so in Las Vegas, I was looking at how the casinos kind of um, bled into the public spaces of, of the city, sidewalks and, and, and streets and things. 
In New York, I was interested in uh, walking tourism and how public culture kind of comes from the ground up from these people who do, um, you know, kind of like are, are kind of in the street historians. Uh, music festivals, so the way that music festivals energize places and, and kind of brand cities. And my, my latest project on, on hospitals, the way that hospitals work with their neighborhoods and the, you know, work with or against their neighborhoods. Um, so the threat of space and people and, and the way that people, you know, kind of engage in place has, has always been there and never left me. Um, and so that's like kind of, I think that that's the main, and I don't know if I'll ever shake it. <laughs> it's like, it's always the thing. It's always the thing I'm interested in. And I, you know, maybe someday I'll graduate to something else. I have to tell you, obviously you and I know this, but I don't know if I told Sienna this and whoever else is listening, but I took your intro to sociology class my freshman year. And I swear I've used that exact same terminology of like flipping a switch. Like that is just how I felt in that class. And it just like, you can't, I know exactly how you're, it's like you just can't get enough of it. It's like, it's like you can't unsee it, you know, and you can't like mm -hmm. unthink it basically. But it's the matrix. If I remember the matrix and what the reference is, I don't remember if it's the blue pill or the red pill, but it's like taking that to, that's the other one that you can use. Um, but I, I, I botched that reference, so I, I won't use it here. <laughs> red pill. Do you like, I, that's a thing that people say like, oh, they're red, you know, you're going to take the red pill. It's the red pill, right? You take the red pill. I think so. Though I, I am so. taking a class currently with Professor Satchali from the comm department, um, and he references this every single time. This is my second time taking course with him, and I still can't figure out the pill colors. Um, but he'll say, like, you know, now that you're in this course, you don't have a choice for taking the pill that leads you down the path of finding out all the things that, you know, you want to know, but, like, you really, like, deep down, you probably don't want to know. Um, and it's... My yeah, I kind of, I say, I say that it kind of, I also, and, and Isabel, I apologize, I'll bore you with this again, is that uh, like, I, I, I relish the idea that I kind of ruin movies and, you know, commercials. And I know such the same way, you know, like you can't, you can't look at something and think in a, in a way that's different from sociology. You know, once, once you tell that story, it's hard not to, you know, you can't put the, you can't put a, the toothpaste back in the tube. Exactly. How many metaphors are we going to use to describe this? So many. We're working on three. <laughs> I mean, obviously you spoke a lot about your research and kind of your interests. And Isabel and I had looked a little at some of your books and articles. And we'd love to ask some more specific questions and jump in there. So in your book, um, Music, City, American Festivals, and Placemaking in Austin, Nashville, and Newport, uh, you discuss the impact of music festivals on cities. We wanted to hear from you about like the basis of this work um, and your findings. Yeah, um, sure. Thank you. It's, uh, I'm, I'm completely flattered that you would even even scan the, the, the blurbs of the book. Um, it, um, so, so when I was finishing my, uh, my first book, uh, which, uh, which is a, was a dissertation. Usually when you're in graduate school, you do a dissertation. Um, if you are qualitatively inclined like me, it tends to be kind of like a big story. Um, if you're more quantitatively inclined, it might be these little kind of like um, articles that you peel off and you can send to, to journals. Um, but but uh, if you're quantitatively inclined or qualitatively inclined, you, you might take that and you, you rewrite it and, and you put it into a book. And that, that takes time. I kind of, I, I wrote a dissertation. I was like, this is a book. And then I sent it to a publisher and they're like, well, it can be a book, but if you want to write it like a book the way I want you to write a book, you have to write a totally different book. And so I ended up having to like kind of rewrite the entire book again, um, <clears throat> which was an experience. 
Um, but in that time, I also started dating uh, a woman who, who um, ended up being my wife. And um, she was a musician and traveling musician. And so she, I would go on tour with her um, playing in her backing bands, um, not because I was good, but because I was free. And so um, I played bass um, behind a kind of three person feminist punk pop band and, that will not go named. Uh, and, uh, and it was wild, it was certainly fun, um, but I, it also gave me a literal backstage pass to thinking about how these festivals work in place. And so the opening of the book is, is uh, when we, were, we performed in Sweden in this, in this town that's about the same size as Amherst, basically. And um, it, they, we got off the train with all these other people and we, we approached the city with, with all our gear and they like pulled away a, a fence and, and we went in. And the fence went all the way around the downtown. So imagine Amherst being completely fenced off so that you can't go to the high horse, you can't go to um, the uh, movie theater, you can't go to the bank um, for a four-day weekend. Only the people who, who paid for this ticket, it was called the Peace and Love Festival, which is kind of like a gothy slash poppy festival. It was great. It was, everybody was wearing black. It was amazing. Like, we were, we were, everybody was wearing black, and they had blonde hair, and, 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 and here we were, like, in a feminist pop band. Um, and... Uh, I, I, that got me thinking, like, what would it, why is it that a city, a town, would be willing, so willing to give up its central business district for four days and uh, to, to out-of-towners? Out and, and, and what do the people who are in town think about that? I talked to people, and, they, and they, they're just like, oh, we just go on holiday. And I was like, how's that even possible? You just, like, you just avoid your own town for four days. I, I think that people would kind of go a little crazy here in, in, in the U.S. And certainly that got me thinking a lot about how this works in the, in the United States. And so I picked um, three cities in areas that have a kind of strong uh, place identity that is tied up with music. And so Nashville, Austin, and then Newport, Rhode Island, which has, uh, is, is not like a hotbed of music, but it does have a long history of being a, having a festivals, uh, the, the Newport Jazz, the Newport Folk Festivals. And it's actually part of the kind of metropolitan statistical area of Providence. And so all those areas, if you think about them as, as metropolitan statistical areas, MSAs, they're all pretty much equally sized. They're all like in the, in the low 30s, um, 32, 33, and 35, I think of, of, of size of population. So, so that made me think like, oh, I'm, you know, these are good places. They, they've got a good story about narrative, uh, uh, about a place narrative that is um, wrapped up in music. And um, so I, 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 I performed at South by Southwest with, with this band. Um, and I traveled and interviewed people in all these different places. And I spoke with the mayor, I spoke with the Convention of Visitors Bureau, I spoke with um, venue owners, music venue owners, I spoke with musicians, I spoke with locals who hate the festivals, <laughs> I spoke with musicians who love the festivals, um, and uh, I tried to get a very holistic picture of how this thing works, and then, and then look at how the, the kind of mechanization that, that makes this festival happen, the histories that, that, that precede it, and then um, how that works with kind of the branding of that city. And so how is music kind of wrapped into um, that, that, that city's self-image? And it was, you know, it, it was a lot, and it was a lot of fun along the way. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say hearing you perform with 
a feminist punk band in Sweden is like too cool for a sociology podcast. Like this feels wrong. <laughs> like it's well, I'm I'm, cool. I'm very old now, so it was I was much younger, and it was not. It's 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 not a yeah. It's not. It, it was cool. I'm not sure it is anymore. No, I was just gonna say but all the festivals that you mentioned: Newport Folk Festival, South by Southwest. These are all things that when I came to UMass. These were like the festivals I was really excited about. And I was like, oh, I'm going to go on spring break and I'll go to Austin, Texas to go to South by Southwest. So having that kind of like common thread of like, these are the things that we see, but maybe, you know, the, Im the impacts on these communities that we don't think about where I'd be like, oh, yes, I'll, I'll travel this far for this. And then no idea what's happening in the surrounding community. Um, that's a very, a very different perspective that I don't even think I would have had until yeah, sociology tends to think like not in, you know, like I'm going to go study this neighborhood or I'm going to study this building or this organization, but being able to study something where like people travel to, it happens for three or four days and then it kind of disappears for another year. It's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like those people that study that, that plant, you know, that big plant that's, that opens up like this and it smells really bad and it only opens up every few years. I feel, I feel like festivals sometimes smell really bad. Um, this is a great metaphor, speaking of metaphors, but um, this is fresh material. I've never, I've never thought of it in this way. Um, but yeah, like once it flowers, it flowers and then it goes away and then it's, it's, it, it, it's dormant. And the people who study that, I don't know what they do for the rest of the year. And I kind of felt similarly, <laughs> like I, I, I went and interviewed other people, but I, you know, I went there and I, I, I smelled the smells and drank the beer and listened to the music and, and interviewed as many people as possible in that time. And then, and then the rest of the year, it took, it took several years for me to do, but the rest of the year then I was doing interviews and things like that. Um, but yeah, no, I also love festivals. So I did. I, I, it, doing anything doing any research kind of beats the love out of out of it a little bit um but I, I i really do love being in festivals i love going to them i love the smorgasbord of just as much music as you can possibly experience seeing acts that you always want to see being able to see be introduced to new acts that you that you um never had heard before and seeing kind of experiences that you can't experience just by listening to your headphones. You know, why is it that, I, I think one of the, you know, kind of endearing things about the, the book is that it, it tries to make the case of why, like physicality and place and being together is, is, is somehow important. Like, why is it when you can buy for 15 bucks or if you're a student, 5.99, um, Apple Music, which gives you every kind of music that you could possibly want, how is it possible that people still want to go to a festival? <laughs> like, why would you go? There's something about, that collectivity and that social life that is um, that that I that I thought is really really important and interesting as a sociological idea, but then also um, now like we aren't we aren't together. Um, I think you know it's a good time to think about how festivals you know can work. I, I and in this moment, it's it's terrible what's happening to live music right now. It's really in a, in, in a I fear a death spiral um, because local music venues are just really really struggling right now. And, um, and to do a festival is, is really, really difficult. You see some musicians doing it right now, how to do a social distance performance. Um, but a performance is one thing. You sit in a box, you can sit in a kind of like taped out six by six space on a lawn. Um, so Nico Case is doing this right now in, in Connecticut and, and Vermont. She's, she just announced it and there's other venues. Dave Chappelle did something similar in Ohio. Um, but a festival is about like moving around and seeing different stages and being together and going all different locations. And I, I don't know how that's going to work. It's, 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 it's terrifying to me. Yeah, I saw, I was totally bamboozled the other day. I was just like 
on Instagram or something and I see Pitchfork Festival with all these amazing artists. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, you guys are like going to do like a drive-in. It said like drive-in, all these artists. And I was like, this is amazing. Like, this is like so great. Like, I'm going to have to go to Chicago. And then it was like, we're streaming the like best performances for the past years. And I'm like, well, of course, like too good to be true normally, but like, you know. So yeah, things are definitely looking weird. But you know, I, I mean, I'm spending my money on those festivals because those are, I'm, I, when bands do, there's a great band called Deer Tech um, that is from Newport. They're so great and they do shows and they're just trying their best to do shows. And you better believe me, if there's a band that's a struggling band of good people that, I, that you know for a long time and you want to throw them 10 bucks to see their live show, um, you know, on a streaming, you know, this is, or buy a t-shirt, like, for the love of God, buy that t-shirt. You know, merch is the only way, the only pure way to to support musicians. And so buy, I should have been wearing some merch. Um, you, you you know, if you want to, that's, that's like the number one thing that I could possibly say of my experience being, you know, kind of adjacent to a band and, and doing this research. Um, buy the merch, see their streaming. If they're streaming in their backyard playing a performance as, as Deer Ticket, like pay for, pay for that. Pay the 10 bucks. I love your tick, so I'm probably going to go buy some merch after this, despite the fact that, like, consumerism is the only thing that I've really been engaging with right now. Like, I don't leave my house. I haven't really been getting food or anything other than groceries. But online shopping has really been, like, my way of feeling connected, like, receiving yeah. mail even, sending stuff to myself. It's it's ridiculous. It feels well, in our house, we, we have a big joke about, like, garbage day. We're like, it's garbage day. We get to, like... <laughs> Do like go outside. I mean, we do it as a joke of how sad that is, but um, but it is you're you're not wrong. And and you know, I think consumerism. If you if you're able to buy, if you're able to kind of like target that towards the 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 um, you know, for good. Um, I you know, I think that that's a great you know. I I got a I got a pin that's it. This is a Black Lives Matter, and then it, it says do your research in the top. You know, why am I spending? What, why I saw that and I'm just like, yeah, I'm going to spend that money. It goes to like some organization. I'm like, yeah, I'm definitely going to cons-. And then when the package came, I was like, I got my pin. Yes, yeah, I think you just put it really well. Like me and like all of my friends have just been like ordering so much online. And it's like, why? Well, one, it's like boredom, but it's like, makes you feel something. It's like, oh, there's a package for me, from me, like for something that I don't need. Like, good. But you're right. It's like, if you watch where you spend your dollar, then it's more than that, you know. Um, you're so right about how music festivals are so much more than just like consuming music it's just the whole energy of being together and like being in these cities so i'm interested now how do you think like what can what are we going to learn from the pandemic and that like i feel like like you were saying people don't think about music festivals really maybe like the dominant narrative is not like come and connect with other people let's come and see music so now what are we going to like learn from this what are we realizing about the connection that we didn't realize before because we're now deprived of it you know i do not know <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 uh, when I'll tell you that, that, um, there was a thing in, b before you were born, I'm, I'm sure, uh, it was called Y2K and the, the, the belief, I don't, I don't know how familiar you are with this or your listeners are, but there was a, this, this real genuine panic because banks had been all their, their, their technology had only had their, um, the dates digitally imprinted as two digits. So like, you know, today would be 20 doesn't really work, but like next year would be 21, not 2021. Um, 
And so there's this panic that every, there's, you know, people are pulling their money out of the bank and everything. And I thought to myself, there's, there's, you know, there's two kinds of people that, that might do well in the, in the post Y2K moment. And that's, and that's like programmers and sociologists. Like, you know, when, when the, the Y2K apocalypse happens, we'll, we'll need somebody to like build the society back up. And so I was, I was, I was being glib about like, you know, my chosen profession. Um, but in the end, of it, it passed, and, um, and, and then everything snapped back to normal. And, and I do, you know, I, so I, I guess that this is obviously a different kind of uh, phenomenon. Um, but I, do, I don't, don't, I would say, don't underestimate humans' capacity to um, repress and forget and um, make choices that um, aren't necessarily in their best interest. Uh, so I, you know, I, I would if I were a betting person, I would say that things go absolutely back to normal, um, quote unquote normal. And, um, but I, but I, but I'm not sure for that. You know, I think, I think it's a great time to be a sociologist. Imagine, I mean, just give pity right now a moment to all of the grad students who were like two years into their graduate study, who were interested in studying, you know, um, I don't know anybody who's studying this. So I'll say them bike messenger, garbage and recycling group that, that comes through Northampton and collects all the garbage and recycling, pedal people. Like, pedal people, you're studying pedal people and um, a flat hierarchy co-op uh, business that is, you know, has the ethics of environmentalism, et cetera. Um, and then all of a sudden this pandemic hits and then you're like, now you're not studying pedal people, but you're studying like trash collection in a pandemic, you know? You're studying bankers, you're studying bankers now in a pand after a pand pandemic. Um, so everybody's kind of shifting gears, I think a little bit, and that's kind of, that can be really exciting. I um, mean, certainly the great thing about qualitative research is that um, you, there's a great line by one, one of the people that I really respect who, who um, has been very, has been my guardian angel, this guy, Howie Becker. And he, he says that like, you know, so qualitative research is really fun because A, you're already doing it. Like you've already thought about it. You've already had some ideas. Um, B, um, you're going to finish it because at some point you got to send out a book or do a dissertation. It's, it stops, you know, and, and C is, is that you, you know, getting from, from A to B is, is tends to be a lot of fun. And no matter what happens, you're, you're, you can adapt to it. And so he gives the example, I believe of a factory and you go and you get your approval to interview people and you do all your interviews and you do all this. And then uh, you do site visits and you go and you do field work and then the factory closes down. And then you're like, um, what am I doing? Well, now you're studying a factory that closed down. You know, like that's just that's just the study. Um, and so I do think that people are are now shifting gears. Um, and and actually, really, the people who are, are struggling right now are like first year and second year grad students who have to come up with some sort of research program about what exactly. Um, and that's and that's terrifying, you know. And also, the job market's going to be terrible. So it's 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 all really bad for sociology, but in that kind of way. But we had kind of uh, wanted to ask specifically about your research. Uh, you tend to engage with like the scholarship of theorists like Goffman and Baber. Um, and we were wondering if you could elaborate a little on how you tend to apply these uh, and possibly other theoretical groundings when understanding urban phenomena. But also, especially, as you've said, like the way we would apply theory right now or the way that we're understanding um, the social world right now is very different because we're in or within the pandemic. Um, and so maybe like how applying this theory 
is different based on these constraints or if you found new ways that these theories apply? So I, th I tend to do theory very lightly. Um, I love teaching theory. I, I'm, it's one of my favorite classes to teach uh, if I get the chance to teach it. Uh, so, I, and I love reading theory. I've, I've consumed so much theory over, over the years and I, I often when I teach theory, I ask the students to kind of guess what theorist I like the most and they never can figure it out because I'm just such a nerd about everything. And I'm, you know, and I'm not like a, I'm not like a Marxist. I'm not like a Weberian or I'm not a Goffmanian, Goffmaniac. Um, I, I, you know, I genuinely like a, a, a lot of it. And so I'm, I, as, because I'm kind of, I have a lot of infidelity when it comes to theory, I, I, tend to use a theory that works for the you know kind of case that I'm studying, not having, not looking for, you know, kind of ways to prove my theory uh, or a theory that I believe in or ascribe to. And so I tend to be a little bit more seen as being maybe a, a little bit of a dilettante, but that's fine. Um, so, so I'll like flip through different theories and use different theories. And, and for both of my books, I have kind of like big theorists, but you wouldn't even really guess who they are that, that kind of guide me. And so they're they're not Goffman and 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 Weber as my kind of those are the ones that like I mentioned, but there's like kind of like subtext theorists that I that I dig. Um, so right now um, with the hospital book, I'm I'm working with this anthropological theory about contact zones and looking at how um, we can think about the different symbolic, social, and physical contact zones that that communities that are surrounding hospitals kind of make with the, the hospital itself. Um, overall, the project is, is about the kind of what we call the paradox of the overserved medical community. So you have a, a place that theoretically should be well served um, because it's right outside of an urban hospital. Um, and, and we're looking specifically at Hartford and Cleveland and Denver, um, a place Aurora outside of Denver actually. And, um, and why is it that some of the worst health outcomes are directly outside the doors of, of these hospitals? And so contact zones are really a critical thing. You know, why is it that, that these people feel that they symbolically cannot approach the hospital, that the hospital is not for them? Socially, what are the, what are the kinds of interactions that they have and with whom do they interact with when they uh, work with hospitals? And then, and then also physically, how do they like, you know, what are the spaces that kind of prevent them from coming to to the to the hospitals themselves uh, so an example being you know Hartford in, in Hartford they, they, they have this like beautifully named neighborhood called uh, Frog Hollow which which I entirely love as, an, as a name but also as a neighborhood that is, is primarily Hispanic and it's right outside of the of, of Hartford Hospital which is the primary kind of like hospital one of two main hospitals in the, in the city and um, they they have a really hard time with getting Spanish-speaking um, like People, like uh, uh, workers, right? And so you have Spanish-speaking workers who um, only learn Spanish in college, and they um, were their Spanish is not the same Spanish as the Spanish that they're that the people who live around the neighborhood. And so what you have is is, is um, people mis misunderstanding and using the wrong terms. And my Spanish is terrible, um, but I think that the one example that I had from an interview was ahara, which means, um, which can mean now or soon, depending on whether you're Puerto Rican or if you're Mexican. And so like if you're giving somebody some pills and you, or if you tell them that they have to go to a hospital, there is a big difference between now and soon. 
And if you do not speak the kind of specific Spanish to that neighborhood, you're really, you, you're putting people's lives in jeopardy. And so um, that's just like one example of the context zone, right? And so I talk specifically about like race and gentrification um, in that, in that using, by using that theory, right? And, and using the, the, the theory of context zones as a framework and then, and then breaking it down into the symbolic and the social and the physical um, as, as different ways of, of doing, you know, kind of like, of, of, of kind of like putting some meat on the bones of, of this idea of, of the context zone, which is an anthropological term, not a, not sociology, but they're kind of sister disciplines. Yeah, I love that you bring that up. My mom's an interpreter and she does most of her work in hospitals and in courts. And I've heard like crazy. Oh my God. Crazy. Yeah, so very exactly. In Spanish to English. And very exactly like stories like this. It's definitely a big problem. That, and then soon enough, they're all going to be placed by machines, which will make things worse. And yeah. You know. Yeah, there's like a phone interpreter thing that they, they use, like tele, tele, tele doctor or whatever. And that, that's, that's all sorts of problems. But there's nothing better than doing an interview where you give an example and, some, and the person that's doing the interview is like, yeah, actually, I can totally, that's exactly right. So I think that for the end of the interview, we wanted to switch gears a little bit. And Sienna and I know that you are newly chair of the department. And we just want to know if you could talk a bit about like what that means right now, like what that looks like right now, what would have been the challenges or the rewards of the job. Just you could talk a bit about that. <laughs> rewards. Um, I, uh, I, I, will all, I will always bring this up, uh, that, that one of my colleagues said, oh, you should write a list of all the things that a chair does so that we can understand and empathize better and maybe help you. It came from a very like good place. Um, and it literally is like, insane the amount of things that I have like uh, like my first day um, somebody said that there's a leak in in their office and somebody else is saying that they're the toilet seats need to be fixed in the you know COVID moment um, uh, because we're short-staffed and there's a hiring freeze in our department um, or, well it you know on the campus we we're we're severely short-staffed which means that I'm doing the um, like listservs and the the, the the calendar document like you know that we have as a department um, I, and you know and those are all the like ticky tacky little things um, somebody said that being a chair is like being pecked to death by ducks and that definitely seems like it's the case uh, it, 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 it's just lots and lots of little little tasks that that kind of work in the COVID moment because I've got my kids are here and they, you know they're always they're always they only give me like three minutes so I can do a three-minute task um, but there's a looming budget crisis um, that is quite serious um, and that um, with uh, the increasing and entirely um, appropriate demands um, that are coming from the Black Lives Matter movement. And so those two things is how do we, how do we, how do we provide either support and services and really take stock of what we offer as a department and um, address those 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 very real and appropriate demands that, that are being asked of all of us in this moment um, with very reduced you know kind of fiscal um, you know kind of coffers our coffers and and that's a that's probably the big the big challenge you know I, I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time figuring that out um, it what it means is, is is that it's a ton more work on on faculty who are already doing a ton more work and um, grad students are stressed, faculty are stressed, staff are stressed, we're all kind of at maximum capacity and above. And it's, it's you, you know, what that means as a chair is just, I think, you know, as a chair, you're kind of a middleman. Um, you're not in charge, you're not in, you know, I can't make the budget better. I, you know, it's hard for me to do that. 
um, yet there's demands coming up and there's demands coming down and you're kind of at this pivot point as a role. Um, and all these people used to be my, like my friends and, and now they're the, you know, I have, have over for a beer in, in the back. Now they're kind of my, my, you know, like they, they need things of me <laughs> and I need things of them and I need to tell them things. So being a chair is generally pretty hard, but in a moment of crisis, it's, it's really, really dramatic. Uh, my hope is that the undergraduates, um, while obviously are um, noticing a, a lot <laughs> because they're taking classes online and, and, and podcasts and things like that, um, but that, um, that, that you don't see like some of the real hard work that's being done kind of up top, you know? Uh, it tends to be like the Wizard of Oz, the, the little man behind the, you know, I'm the little man behind the curtain who's got all those like ears and bells and whistles um, that I'm desperately trying to pull and um, I don't mind that you pull the curtain back a little bit. The podcast is a way to do that. Um, but it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's a real slog up here, you know, for, for faculty and grad students. And, you know, I think overall, the biggest thing that I, I coming into this job, I thought the most important thing is emotional intelligence, being able to realize that the people who are around you are, are struggling too, um, that the COVID crisis affects um, groups differently um, and unequally. And that um, you might think of a faculty member or your professor as being, you know, kind of like disengaged or, you know, kind of like zany. Um, we already had that reputation as being like kind of like totally insane. You know, it's like this does not help with that reputation. Um, we, we, we tend to be scatterbrained anyway. Like, you know, there's not so many jobs for somebody who reads Goffman and Foucault and, you know, is pretty scatterbrained. Um, so we tend to gravitate towards these kinds of jobs as professors. Um, but this isn't helping. But, you know, I hope, I tell, I tell the faculty this, I tell the grad students this, and I tell, you know, I'm telling you as undergraduates, I think we all need a collective boost in our kind of emotional intelligence and really thinking about how we, um, you know, how we can support each other or at least give each other a little bit of grace um, in these moments when, when we mess up. You tell me really quickly, how, how's it going? That's one of the plans for our next podcast. Um, but to, to preface it a little bit, it's going terribly, um, <laughs> terribly on our end as well. Yeah. Uh, and I think definitely like the need for emotional intelligence is there, but finding ways to connect with people on that level and just being able to come to terms with that has been very difficult. Like being yeah. able to find that connection because yeah. a lot of this, I think a lot of the, the bases that I had, like having, you know, a group of faculty in a department is different than like being in a class, obviously, or like making connections there. Um, and I worked as an RA on campus and I felt like I had a good community in my cluster. And then we obviously lost that as well. Um, so definitely it's like been losing community and finding community in new ways. Um, and look, I, I think we're, I think we're the best equipped for this. You know, I, I think as sociologists, we, we really are the, we, we have the most, you know, kind of like tools at our disposal for this. We understand race. We understand gender. We understand sexuality. We understand power. We understand inequality. Um, we should be, we should be the, the, the kind of like most reflexive about thinking about this sort of thing. I, I feel bad for the, the people in management. I feel bad for the students in engineering. Um, you know, we, we are the ones who should be understanding this stuff the best and I, you know, I'm coping with it the best. Um, and I think it's maybe, you know, maybe it's our, our responsibility to be better at the, you know, kind of like the front lines of this in our, in our university, in our collective community. We're the ones who, who do understand emotional intelligence. If we, if we put 
if we understand that that is the funnel through which we can apply or, or, or send out all the research and concepts and ideas that we have at our disposal, we're, we, we have a bat belt that's full of, of stuff that we can use for that. Um, you know, whether we do or not, I, I don't know. You'll solve that through this podcast. Uh, well, yeah, we'll solve all of the all of the problems from the please. Just yes, the please. Podcast. Thank, thank God. I'm so glad we 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 ended with that. It's one thing <laughs> off my plate. Yeah, you'll do it now. Thank yeah. You. In the meantime, we just want to say thanks so much. This was really this was so much fun talking to you. Seriously, we had a lot of fun and had great conversation. We learned a lot from you. So thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a pleasure. <laughs>